We want to be people of reason, or we should want to be people of reason. Both those things are actually the same. Indeed, we want our societies to be governed by reason. But people, being people, have different preferences. How then should we go about deciding what we as a society should do, given differing viewpoints? Well, we vote, don't we? We enact the will of the people. And to ensure we are reasonable when we go about doing this, we should employ the tools of reason. Mathematics to the rescue, of course. Indeed, there is a branch of mathematics called game theory. And within that, an even narrower branch called social choice theory, which, as we will come to see, animated such luminaries as von Neumann to try to set in mathematical stone the logical rules for making decisions when people's preferences differed. The point of this chapter, chapter 13 choices, as I see it anyway, is twofold. On the one hand, it is a defense of logic and mathematics and reason more generally to solve problems, to solve real problems. But on the other, it is a criticism of the idea that we can create pristine algorithms, proofs or whatever you like, of what we should do, how we should vote, what voting systems we should implement, what decision algorithms we should, we should try and legislate for so that we are always perfectly reasonable. The reason why that project has failed and will always fail is because there exist in the mathematical universe and hence in the physical universe so-called no-go theorems. These no-go theorems can be used to show, or mathematically prove we might say, that there is no such thing really as the will of the people. Now as David writes on, and we'll come to this on page 338, there is no way to regard society as a decision maker with self-consistent preferences, end quote. Society is a thing that exists, but it is not something analogous to a single mind, which can indeed be said to have preferences. But as we'll also come to see, things are even more complicated than that. It gets even worse because individual minds themselves must be inconsistent in some ways. So the whole purpose here, and why this chapter is, has such an important role in the beginning of infinity, is that we want to make choices that transform the world into a better place, don't we? But any attempt to do this by supposedly perfectly rational means will always meet with paradoxes and irrationality. And this is because the conventional view of transforming the world into a better place is to decide between the existing theories on offer. But in truth, this is rarely actually the choice before us, whether it's in our own personal lives or as a society at large. We people create new explanations which themselves transform the world. And this misconception about what decision-making is, is what Sam Harris might call on his podcast, one of the most pressing problems of our time, end quote. People get into terrible debates and deadlock and dead ends in those debates over what should and indeed must absolutely be done to solve some particular problem. But they fight over the existing solutions as though they are the only possible solutions that shall ever present themselves, or that indeed this is how we should spend a great deal of our energy in debates over dead-end solutions. Rational decision-making, as we'll come to see on this worldview, and we're going to explore this towards the, more towards the end of the chapter, is more about choosing among explanations and finding which is the best explanation once all the others have been successfully criticised. And remember, and David makes this point here in this chapter and he's made it in many other places as well, having multiple explanations for any phenomena is exceedingly rare. One is lucky enough to be presented with one single explanation 
And in very rare cases, we've got two. So rather often, we have this one explanation. And so it's called the explanation of whatever that thing happens to be. And so that's the one that we use to direct rational human action. And where we lack a good explanation, which is extremely often, then we have to create new explanations. We have to create more knowledge. And this then helps us to increase the repertoire of choices that we have before us. And this idea of having one good, namely one hard to vary, known, best explanation for a given phenomena, applies to deciding among explanations itself. It's reflexive. There is only one known good explanation of how to decide among good explanations. And that's what we're going to be discussing here in the chapter on choices. It extends into voting systems, which is an absolutely crucial part of a functioning society. There really are worse voting systems. And where they exist, they tend towards irrational outcomes more than the alternative best system would. So this chapter begins with an extended and pretty detailed investigation into, and it's, it's seemingly quirky, but as it's being used as an example of the irrationality that can creep into apparently perfectly rational systems. But, but it begins with the example of the United States House of Representatives, of all things. And it, it talks about how these seats are allocated there in the United States House of Representatives. Now, although very interesting in itself, it, it seems rather parochial, which is unusual for the beginning of infinity. But really, the, this discussion about the United States House of Representatives is just serving as a case study about how to rationally make decisions. In this case, how can it be rationally decided to allocate the correct number of seats per state to the House of Reps? Now, at times in this chapter, I'm going to skim because there is a lot of detail here. So I'll skim part of the chapter, which isn't typically my practice. Um, normally, I'll read a chunk and then tell you when I'm leaving out a bit. But, but I might not do this that this time just to make things flow a little better. So I might be leaving out lots, but I won't be telling you that I'm leaving out lots. So I'd urge you, if uh, you need more, indeed, you must go to Chapter 13, um, Choices, because I'll, I'll be leaving out some, and at times I won't be making you aware of it. And the reason, the reason the chapter is so detailed is because David really does do a comprehensive overview of just about all the objections that the reader might reasonably raise as he presents each problem with the voting system. And this is because, in, in a rather astonishing way, each simple, logical, or mathematical solution to the problem being raised itself creates new problems. So each time, there, and this is, of course, common in science and mathematics in general, but here it is uh, especially illuminating, that you think, oh, why don't they just, and David will talk about this, why don't they, they just idea, um, that there might be a very simple solution, clear or obvious to most people thinking about the topic, but when pursued through to its logical conclusion, itself causes logical problems. And so just for, um, uh, for illustrative purposes, I'll only, I'll only talk about a couple of these problems myself, and so you need to go to the book, uh, because the, the upshot of it all is, even when the full force of mathematics and the best mathematicians indeed are applied to seemingly trivial problems like, how do we fairly allocate the number of seats in the House of Reps among the states, insoluble problems and paradoxes arise. And that should be a concern to anyone who thinks they can, like Dr. Spock or some other Vulcan from Star Trek, be perfectly logical all or almost all of the time. So what's the parable of all this going to be? Well, creativity is needed. So this chapter is very much a beginning of infinity. 
And although David does not really mention the term in this chapter, he doesn't, he doesn't highlight it uh, that much, it's always there beneath the surface that it's very much about morality. It's an investigation into the logic of morality. Now, after all, morality is very much the question of what to do next, how to choose among the options presented to you about what to do next, or how to possibly, in more, more often the cases, given that the choices before you are unsatisfactory, one must deploy their creativity in order to create a new and better choice than the, one that's, than the ones that exist. And this idea that morality is, a, is, is, is about what to do next, more on that in David's second interview with Sam Harris on the Making Sense podcast. Morality is about choices, deciding what to do. So let's begin the chapter and let's look at the logic of decision making and, and how we can make better choices both personally and as a society. So hello, welcome to TopCast after that lengthy introduction. Chapter 13, Choices. I'm diving straight in. In March 1792, George Washington exercised the first presidential veto in the history of the United States of America. Unless you already know what he and Congress were quarrelling about, I doubt you will be able to guess. Yet the issue remains controversial to this day. With hindsight, one may even perceive a certain inevitability in it. For, as I shall explain, it is rooted in a far-reaching misconception about the nature of human choice, which is still prevalent. Pause in my reflection. What an introduction to the chapter. I mean, far-reaching misconception about the, the nature of human choice. So this is why we're looking at this rather parochial, quirky little example. Um, and as I said in my introduction, I'm just going to skim read through parts of this. Back to the book. On the face of it, the issue seems no more than a technicality. In the US House of Representatives, how many seats should each state be allotted? This is known as the apportionment problem because the US Constitution requires seats to be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, i.e. their respective populations. So if your state contained 1% of the US population, it would be entitled to 1% of the seats in the House. This was intended to implement the principle of representative government, that the legislature should represent the people. It was, after all, about the House of Representatives. The US Senate, in contrast, represents the states of the Union, and hence each state, regardless of population, has two senators. Just as a parochial aside, very similar to the Australian Senate, except we have far fewer states, and so we have uh, more senators per state. We've got 12, 12 senators from each state here in Australia, for anyone who's interested in that quirky piece of trivia. Back to the book. At present, there are 435 seats in the House of Representatives. So if 1% of the US population did live in your state, then by strict proportionality, the number of representatives to which it would be entitled, known as its quota, would be 4.35. When the quotas are not whole numbers, which of course they hardly ever are, they have to be rounded somehow. The method of rounding is known as the apportionment rule. The Constitution did not specify an apportionment rule, it left such details to Congress, and that is where the centuries of controversy began. Pause there my reflection. So, uh, 
the the bulk of this first half of the chapter, I suppose, is all about this. So you've got this idea that the Senate, that the House of Representatives has to be representative of the people. And so if the state has 1% of the population, then it should be entitled to 1% of the seats in the House of Representatives. But because the number of seats in the House of Representatives is clearly always going to be far, far smaller than the number of people in the entire United States, there's going to be this rounding problem. And so you might very well round down or you might very well round up. Whether you choose to round in one particular way or, the, or another is going to be called the apportionment rule. Okay, And so this is going to be the source of lots and lots of really interesting paradoxes and problems. I'm going to come to the point that, that there can be no such perfectly rational, fair uh, apportionment rule. But that's kind of stealing the thunder from later on. But let's go back to the book. An apportionment rule is said to stay within the quota if the number of seats that it allocates to each state never differs from the state's quota by as much as a whole seat. For instance, if a state's quota is 4.35 seats, then to stay within the quota, a rule must assign that state either four seats or five. It may take all sorts of information into account in choosing between four and five, but if it is capable of assigning any other number, it is said to violate quota. Right, that seems perfectly fair and reasonable. Let's keep going. When one first hears of the apportionment problem, compromises that seem to solve it at a stroke spring easily to mind. Everyone asks, why couldn't they just... Here is what I asked. Why couldn't they just round each state's quota to the nearest whole number? Under that rule, a quota of 4.35 seats would be rounded down to 4, 4.6 seats would be rounded up to 5. It seemed to me that since this sort of rounding can never add or subtract more than half a seat, it would keep each state within half a seat of its quota, thus staying within the quota with room to spare. I was wrong. My rule violates quota. This is easy to demonstrate by applying it to an imaginary House of Representatives with 10 seats in a nation of four states. Suppose that one of the states has just under 85% of the total population, and that the other three have just over 5% each. The large state therefore has a quota of just under 8.5, which my rule rounds down to 8. Each of the three small states has a quota of just over half a seat, which my rule rounds up to 1. But now we have allocated 11 seats, not 10. In itself, that hardly matters. The nation merely has one more legislator to feed than planned. The real problem is that this apportionment is no longer representative. 85% of 11 is not 8.5, but 9.35. So the large state with only eight seats is in fact short of its quota by well over one seat. My rule underrepresents 85% of the population. Because we intended to allocate 10 seats, the exact quotas necessarily add up to 10, but the rounded ones add up to 11. And if there are going to be 11 seats in the House, the principle of representative government and the Constitution requires each state to receive its fair share of those, not of the 10 we merely intended. Pause there, my reflection. And so that's where we begin. That's where the problems come. Rounding, it seems simple, it seems logical, it seems fair, and it's not. <laughs> it can't be logical and fair all at once. And this is what we're going to have um, example after example here in the book about. So going back to the book, again, many why don't they just ideas spring to mind. Why don't they just create three additional seats and give them to the large state, thus bringing the allocation within quota? Why don't they just transfer a seat from one of the small states to a large state? 
Perhaps it should be from the state with the smallest population, so as to disadvantage as few people as possible. That would not only bring all the allocations within the quota, but also restore the number of seats to the originally intended 10. Such strategies are known as reallocation schemes. They are indeed capable of staying within the quota, so what's wrong with them? In the jargon of the subject, the answer is apportionment paradoxes, or in ordinary language, unfairness and irrationality. For example, the last reallocation scheme that I described, which was where we just take the seat from the smallest state and we give it to the largest state so that we have things back within quota, that last reallocation scheme that I described is unfair by being biased against the inhabitants of the least popular state. They bear the whole cost of correcting the rounding errors. On this occasion, their representation has been rounded down to zero. Yet in the sense of minimising the deviation from the quotas, the apportionment is almost perfectly fair. Previously, 85% of the population were well outside quota, and now all are, all are within it, and 95% of the population are at the closest whole numbers to their quotas. It is true that now 5% have no representatives, so they will not be able to vote in congressional elections at all. But that still leaves them within the quota, and indeed only slightly further from their exact quota that they were. Nevertheless, because those 5% have been completely disenfranchised, most advocates of representative government would regard this outcome as much less representative than what it was before. Okay, now I'm skipping a, a vast amount right now. I've just skimmed a little bit there, but I'm, 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 I'm just taking out a whole bunch here. And David goes through a bunch of other problems of the sort. Why don't they just? And the upshot of all this is that, that none of them are able to able to fairly apportion the seats without some other problems arising. And so David gets to the point where he talks about all, all these other apportionment rules and over the years, and he writes, Congress has continually debated and tinkered with the rules of apportionment. Jefferson came up with a rule and it was put in place, but it was dropped in 1841 in favour of one proposed by another senator, Daniel Webster, which does use reallocation. Now, that one also violates quota, but very rarely, and it was, like Hamilton's rule, deemed to be impartial between states. A decade later, Webster's rule was in turn dropped in favour of Hamilton's. The latter's supporters now believed that the principle of representative government was fully implemented and perhaps hoped that this would be the end of the apportionment problem, but they were disappointed. It was soon causing more controversy than ever because Hamilton's rule, despite its impartiality and proportionality, began to make allocations that seemed outrageously perverse. Pause there my reflection. So we, after some discussion, we've come to the understanding that there was this rule, Hamilton's rule. Hamilton came up with this rule, which seemed to be impartial and proportional. However, it started to make allocations that seemed outrageously perverse. So going back to the book. For instance, it was susceptible to what came to be called the population paradox. A state whose population has increased since the last census can lose a seat to one whose population has decreased. I'll say that again. A state whose population has increased since the last census can lose a seat to one whose population has decreased. So that seems absurd, doesn't it? So that's the population paradox. We're going to come back to the population paradox again and again. So just keep that in mind. This idea that population paradox is if your state's population increases, you might very well lose a seat to someone who some other state where their population has decreased, which is weird. And then David goes through Solution, solutions suggested to the population paradox and all the why didn't they just um, uh, attempts to solve that. 
and 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 David talks about the various rules. So there was uh, uh, a rule, the rule that tried to avoid these population paradoxes and things. Um, uh, Hamilton's rule was one. Webster's rule was another. And David writes, after Hamilton's rule was adopted in 1851, Webster still enjoyed substantial support. So Congress tried on at least two occasions a trick that seemed to provide a judicious compromise. Adjust the number of seats in the House until the two rules agree. Surely that would please everyone. Yet the upshot of that was, in 1871, some states considered the result to be so unfair and the ensuing compromise legislation was so chaotic that it was unclear what allocation rule, if any, had been decided upon. The apportionment that was implemented, which included last minute which included the last-minute creation of several additional seats for no apparent reason, satisfied neither Hamilton's rule nor Webster's. Many considered it unconstitutional. For the next few decades after 1871, every census saw either the adoption of a new apportionment rule or a change in the number of seats designed to compromise between different rules. In 1921, no apportionment was made at all. They kept the old one, a course of action that may well have been unconstitutional again because Congress could not agree on a rule. The apportionment issue has been referred several times to eminent mathematicians, including twice to the National Academy of Sciences, and on each, and on each occasion these authorities have made different recommendations. Yet none of them ever accused their predecessors of making errors in mathematics. This ought to have warned everyone that this problem is not really about mathematics. And on each occasion when the experts' recommendations were implemented, paradoxes and disputes kept on happening. In 1901, the Census Bureau published a table showing what the apportionments would be for every number of seats between 350 and 400 using Hamilton's rule. By a quirk of arithmetic of a kind that is common in apportionment, Colorado would get three seats for each of these numbers except for 357, when it would get only two. The chairman of the House Committee on Apportionment, who was from Illinois, I do not know whether he had anything against Colorado, proposed that number of seats be changed to 357 and that Hamilton's rule be used. This proposal was regarded with suspicion and Congress eventually rejected it, adopting a 386-member apportionment and Webster's rule, which also gave Colorado its rightful three seats. But was that apportionment really any more rightful than Hamilton's rule with 357 seats? By what criterion? Majority voting among apportionment rules? What exactly would be wrong with working out what a large number of rival apportionment rules would do and then allocating to each state the number of representatives that the majority of the schemes would allocate? The main thing is that that itself is an apportionment rule. Similarly, combining Hamilton's and Webster's schemes as they tried to do in 1871 just constituted adopting a third scheme. And what does such a scheme have going for it? Each of its constituent schemes was presumably designed to have some desirable properties. A combined scheme that was not designed to have those properties will not have them except by coincidence. So it will not necessarily inherit the good features of its constituents. It will inherit some good ones and some bad ones and have additional good and bad features of its own. But if it was not designed to be good, why should it be? Pause there my reflection. And here I'm going to uh, utterly and completely steal David's thunder from towards the end of the chapter because it's one of the most profound things that I read in the book and so and it has really changed my thinking on this particular matter. David will come to it but I just want to flag it now because he's talked there about why not um, if you've got these two schemes that are designed to try and solve the problem of apportionment uh, why not 
pick one that's sort of halfway in between these two. As we'll come to see, this is the idea of compromise out there in the world. Um, compromise is a thing that is lauded as a virtue in politics. That if you have two sides of a debate, and over here on side A, they come up with a particular solution, their purported solution, call that solution X. And over here on side B, they have a different solution altogether, a purported solution or policy, and call that theory Y. Now, if they're at loggerheads and they can't agree, it's supposedly a virtue to come to some compromise. Compromise has, as David will say later on, an unfairly high reputation. In fact, compromises are not good. The reason why compromises are not good is because a compromise is a third option. And if you have two groups of people debating among themselves, it could be two political parties, it could just be two people, and A wants to do this thing and B wants to do that thing. The reason A wants to do this thing is because they've got an explanation in their mind, they've got a theory in their mind about why this particular thing, thing X, is the best thing to do. And this group of people over here, or this person B here, thinks that no, X is wrong, Y is the best thing to do, and I have a good explanation in my head as to why Y is the correct thing to do. Now, if in fact you believe in compromise, then you will say, well, you can't decide among you, therefore what you should do is you should do this third thing, this thing Z. Why shouldn't we do that? At least we're doing something. The problem is that if you do Z, if A and B, if they're groups of people, they could be the whole population, they could just be two people in a partnership, if they decide to do this third thing Z, and if this third thing Z, or Z if you're American, if they do that thing, and then that thing fails, which invariably it does, certainly in politics. So many political policies and theories fail. When Z fails, when the third option fails, no one learns anything. Neither Group A nor Group B actually ever endorsed Z. They didn't think that Z was the best idea. They didn't think Z was a particularly good idea at all. They thought that either X or Y was the best idea. So when Z fails, what happens? Both A goes back to endorsing X again, and B goes back to endorsing Y again. They both revert to their original positions. And so then what do you do? You just do another compromise? Why should the compromise be better, given that both X and Y think they've got a good explanation about why their particular theory is the best theory? Wouldn't it be a better, more parsimonious idea to actually try out X? If we try out X and X is shown to fail, great. Everyone has actually learned something. A can no longer be committed to X as actually being the thing that will work and solve the problem because they've learnt that it fails. So then everyone can get behind the alternative now. Everyone can do their best to implement Y. Now, Y might very well fail as well, but at least we're learning things, we're making progress, we're ruling out stuff. We're not ruling out random things that no one thought was a good idea in the first place. If you're going to do the compromise, you may as well just be flipping a coin about what to do next, because no one really has a good idea. Now, it might very well be the case, of course, that X or Y could succeed. We might expect at least one of them to succeed because a whole bunch of creative people have good explanations, in their mind anyway, they have explanations, as to why either X or Y should succeed. But neither of the groups, no one has a good explanation as to why Z should actually work. 
And so when Z fails, that's why we say no one learns anything. No one's explanation has been refuted. Indeed, there was no explanation why Z should work at all in the first place. Z has perhaps some of the good features of X and some of the good features of Y, but it will also have the bad features of X and the bad features of Y, and perhaps more of the bad features of both than either on their own. And it will have some good features of its own and some terrible features of its own. But we shouldn't expect it to work because no one has an explanation about why it should work compared to X and Y, where two groups of people or two individuals do have an explanation in their minds by their lights as to why this thing should work. And that's why it should be tried. And that's why compromise is bad, especially in politics. And yet compromise is held up as this virtue of the way in which politics should proceed. Because people say, at least the government is therefore doing something. Many of us, of course, think that when the government does nothing, that's great. And that the processes that are in place in governments are there for a particular reason, to actually cause gridlock, to actually cause things to stop, so that we can't have these terrible compromises. So the institutions are there to slow things down. But many people th believe in this idea of um, just ramming through any old thing so that something at least is getting done. Government should do something. Many of us think government shouldn't do <laughs> much at all. Government should be restrained from doing um, too much because it tends to do damage when it does anything at all. Not always the case. There are, there are legitimate reasons for government, at least some of us think that. Um, but we like to constrain the ability of government to do stuff because more often than not, it's coming up with compromises that no one believes in, or it's coming up with bad ideas, and it's causing damage rather than finding solutions to our most pressing problems. Okay, after that rant, let me go back to the book. David writes, a devil's advocate might now ask, if majority voting among apportionment rules is such a bad idea, why is majority voting among voters a good idea? It would be disastrous to use it and say science. There are more astrologers than astronomers, and believers in paranormal phenomena often point out that purported witnesses of such phenomena outnumber the witnesses of most scientific experiments by a large factor. So they demand proportionate credence. Yet science refuses to judge evidence in that way. It sticks with the criterion of good explanation. So if it would be wrong for science to adopt that democratic principle, why is it right for politics? Pause there, my reflection. Yes, so for my uh, listeners and viewers that might be new to some of these ideas, um, there is in the public mind, it would seem, an idea of scientific consensus. Now, to some extent, this has validity. Now, there is a sense in which scientific, the, the, the consensus of the scientists has some validity. And it's when a layperson is trying to decide what is scientific knowledge at any particular time. So given a particular area that is not your area of expertise, a good rule of thumb is to presume that whatever the scientific consensus is among the experts in that area is the best theory or the best explanation at a given time. That doesn't mean that it's true. It just means that that's the best explanation we have. And we should take seriously the best explanations that we have at any particular time. But scientific consensus is not the way we adjudicate between theories, not in science. Clearly, every single good scientific theory was once a minority view, was once understood 
only by a single mind or a small team of people, more than likely only a single mind at any particular time. So once upon a time, the theory of general relativity was only understood by Albert Einstein and no one else. So he had an exceedingly minority view. But we don't take a vote among scientists to decide what is true in physics. We let the theories compete one against the other. And the competition is in light of a crucial experiment. That's, in fact, the way in which we decide between theories of gravity, let's say, which is what happened back in 1919 with Eddington's experiment, which decided between Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity and Newton's uh, universal law of gravitation. Now, that's a, that, that's a trope example, um, but the same is true of any other area of science where there are competing theories, competing explanations as to what accounts for the phenomena in question. But it is not a vote among scientists that decides things. It is experiment that decides. It is observation that decides between theories. It is the evidence that decides between theories. Um, but people who perhaps don't understand science, let's say astrologers, there's more astrologers than astronomers. There's more people that uh, believe they have an understanding of astrology then would say they have an understanding of astronomy or even an interest in one compared to the other. But we don't therefore conclude on that basis that the majority should hold sway, that therefore um, astrologers should be funded by government institutions, let's say. But we do fund astronomers, not because there's more of one than the other, but because there is there are objective objective ways of measuring or comparing the theories of one subject against reality that aren't available in the other. Although there is, I guess there, is, there are certain ways of measuring astrology against reality, but they typically come up bad for astrology. Whatever the case, um, it, if we can appreciate the fact that democratic voting is not the rational means by which we come to um, gain truth or gain better explanations in the area of science, why should democratic votes be the best way of deciding what is best, what is the truer moral choice to make in the sphere of politics? Why is democratic vote good in one area and not in the other? Let me just reread what David said here. So if it would be wrong for science to adopt that democratic principle, why is it right for politics? Is it just because, as Churchill put it, Many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those others that have been tried from time to time. That would indeed be a sufficient reason, but there are cogent positive reasons as well. And they too are about explanation, as I shall explain. Some politicians have been so perplexed by the sheer perverseness of apportionment paradoxes that they have been reduced to denouncing mathematics itself. Representative Roger Q. Mills of Texas complained in 1882. I'm not going to try a Texan accent here, that's for sure. I thought that mathematics was a divine science. I thought that mathematics was the only science that spoke to inspiration and was infallible in its utterances. But here is a new system of mathematics that demonstrates the truth to be false. In 1901, Representative John E. Littlefield, whose own seat in Maine was under threat from the Alabama paradox, said, God help the state of Maine when mathematics reach for her and undertake to strike her down. 
As a matter of fact, there is no such thing as mathematical inspiration, mathematical knowledge coming from an infallible source, traditionally God. As I explained in chapter 8, our knowledge of mathematics is not infallible. Pause there, um, just my commentary here. So this is the uh, mathematic, mathematician's misconception um, to a large extent. Um, and David has written very eloquently and spoken very eloquently about this idea in various places. And I just want to emphasize it again. It's been said many times in this series. Uh, and, but the point is, mathematics is not infallible. Mathematics does not give you certain truth. Mathematics does not even give you necessary truth. Let that sink in for a moment. That angers certain mathematicians. They think that mathematics is a privileged kind of knowledge. Um, I know that I have uh, encountered certainly mathematics teachers that will say that uh, people who do mathematics are very lucky because mathematics is the one place where you can be sure that what you have found, that the answer that you have found, is in fact absolutely 100% correct. But this is wrong. And the reason it's wrong is because the mathematics has been done by a mathematician who's human. And humans are always fallible. The point is that the subject matter of mathematics is necessary truth. This is what David says in The Fabric of Reality. So I'll say that again. The subject matter, what mathematics is studying, is necessary truth. But that's not the reward you get for doing mathematics, says David. It's much the same as in physics. The subject matter of physics is the laws of physics. But that does not mean that by doing physics, we discover the final absolute laws of physics. What we have is knowledge of the laws of physics. This is a crucial difference. And it's not just a, a quirky little bit of philosophy. This is an important thing to understand because it goes to the heart of fallibility. That the knowledge of something is not the thing in itself. Here's my uh, teacup. Uh, the teacup is there. It's out there in the world in reality. I've got certain knowledge about the teacup, about how big it is, what color it is, and so on and so forth. I can be wrong about any of that, even though the teacup is right here in front of me and I can provide a description of it, which will necessarily always be incomplete and necessarily contain errors. I can be wrong about any part of it. So too with mathematics. The mathematical realm is not here in physical reality for us to look at, but it is there in abstract space. And we can be wrong about the theorems of mathematics. We can prove theorems of mathematics, but those proofs, the pr proof is just a certain kind of process, a computation that the mathematician goes through. The computation does not confer on the conclusions of that computation, upon the result of that proof, absolute certainty. At any point in the proof, an error might have been committed, an error might have crept in. Either because the mathematician themselves made an error, there was an error in the assumptions, uh, the calculator that was used to do the proof might have been uh, malfunctioning. There's, a, there's any number of reasons why the conclusion of the proof might not be absolutely true. And by the way, there are many mathematicians who do concede this, pure mathematicians, who understand that the axioms they begin with, this is how mathematics works, it begins with axioms, it follows rules of inference and so on, it leads to a conclusion, the conclusion can be regarded as a theorem. The point is that the axioms themselves, even though they might be so-called self-evident, that itself does not confer absolute truth upon the axioms. Self-evident to you 
could not might not be self-evident to someone else. Whatever the case, you can't prove axioms are true. That's why they're called axioms. But the conclusion in a valid proof only contains as much truth as the premises that you begin with. However much truth there is in the assumptions is via the method of proof conferred upon the conclusion. But if you don't know how much truth is actually in the assumptions, then you cannot possibly be certain of the absolute truth of your conclusion. And so that's, the, that's part of the mathematician's misconception as David uh, speaks about it in various other places. Uh, very interesting part of this philosophy of the philosophy of mathematics as well. And very poorly subscribed to, I should say, as well. People do still have the hierarchy of knowledge that is spoken about in the fabric of reality, where mathematics is up here as the highest form, this rarefied sphere of absolute certainty. And just below that is science, where although you can't be certain, you can be nearly certain, you can be very, very sure about what, what's going on in science. And then below that is philosophy, where it's all just mere matters of opinion. That's the classical misconceived view of knowledge. Of course, knowledge is an interconnected web where you can be wrong about any particular part of it and where sometimes there are far better explanations in philosophy than there are in certain areas of science and so on. Okay, let's go back to the book. So I just said that um, <clears throat> uh, our knowledge of mathematics is not infallible. But if Representative Mills meant that mathematicians are, or somehow ought to be, society's best judges of fairness, then he was simply mistaken. The National Academy of Sciences panel that reported to Congress in 1948 included the mathematician and physicist John von Neumann, and it decided that a rule invented by the statistician Joseph Adner Hill, which is the one in use today, is the most impartial between states. But the mathematicians Michelle Belinsky and Peyton Young have since concluded that it favours smaller states. This illustrates again that different criteria of impartiality favour different apportionment rules, and which of them is the right criterion cannot be determined by mathematics. Indeed, if Representative Mills intended his complaint ironically, if he really meant that mathematics alone could not possibly be causing injustice, and that mathematics alone could not cure it, then he was right. However, there is a mathematical discovery that has changed forever, the nature of the apportionment debate. We now know that the quest for an apportionment rule that is both proportional and free from paradoxes can never succeed. Belinsky and Young proved this in 1975. Belinsky and Young's theorem. Every apportionment rule that stays within quota suffers from the population paradox. This powerful no-go theorem explains the long string of historical failures to solve the apportionment problem. Never mind the various other conditions that may seem essential for an apportionment to be fair, no apportionment rule can meet even the bare bones requirements of proportionality and the avoidance of the population paradox. Belinsky and Young also proved no-go theorems involving other classic paradoxes. This work had much broader context than the apportionment problem. During the 20th century, and especially following the Second World War, a consensus had emerged among most political movements that the future welfare of humankind would depend on an increase in society-wide, preferably worldwide, planning and decision-making. The Western consensus differed from its totalitarian counterparts in that it expected the object of the exercise to be the satisfaction of individual citizens' preferences. So Western advocates of society-wide planning were forced to address a fundamental question that totalitarians do not encounter. When a society as a whole faces a choice and citizens differ in their preferences among the options, which option is best for a society to choose? 
If people are unanimous, there is no problem, but no need for a planner either. If they are not, which option can be rationally defended as being the will of the people, the option that society wants? And that raises a second question. How should society organise its decision-making so that it does indeed choose the options that it wants? These two questions had been present, at least implicitly, from the beginning of modern democracy. For instance, the US Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution both speak of the right of the people to do certain things such as remove governments. Now they became the central questions of a branch of mathematical game theory known as social choice theory. Thus game theory, formerly an obscure and somewhat whimsical branch of mathematics, was suddenly thrust into the centre of human affairs, just as rocketry and nuclear physics had been. Many of the world's finest mathematical minds, including von Neumann, rose to the challenge of developing the theory to support the needs of the countless institutions of collective decision-making that were being set up. They would create new mathematical tools, which, given what all the individuals in a society want or need or prefer, would distill what a society wants to do, thus implementing the aspiration of the will of the people. They would also determine what systems of voting and legislating would give society what it wants. Some interesting mathematics was discovered, but little, if any of it, ever met those aspirations. On the contrary, time and again, the assumptions behind social choice theory were proved to be incoherent or inconsistent by no-go theorems like that of Belinsky and Young. Thus it turned out that the apportionment problem which had absorbed so much legislative time, effort and passion was the tip of an iceberg. The problem is much less parochial than it looks. For instance, rounding errors are proportionally smaller with a larger legislature. So why don't they just make the legislature very big, say 10,000 members, so that all the rounding areas would be trivial? One reason is that such a legislature would have to organise itself internally to make any decisions. The factions within the legislature would themselves have to choose leaders, policies, strategies and so on. Consequently, all the problems of social choice would arise within the little society of a party's contingent in the legislature. So it is not really about rounding errors. Also, it is not only about people's top preferences. Once we are considering the details of decision-making in large groups, how legislatures and parties and factions within parties organise themselves to contribute their wishes to society's wishes, we have to take into account their second and third choices. Because people still have a right to contribute to decision-making if they cannot persuade a majority to agree to their first choice. Yet electoral systems designed to take such factors into account invariably introduce more paradoxes and no-go theorems. One of the first no-go theorems was proved in 1951 by the economist Kenneth Arrow, and it contributed to his winning the Nobel prize for economics in 1972. Arrow's theorem appears to deny the very existence of social choice and to strike at the principle of representative government and apportionment and democracy itself and a lot more besides. Uh, pause there, just my reflection. Just on uh, this thing about Arrow's theorem, which we're about to get to a description of, um, there's uh, an interesting person on Twitter. Ethan the Mathmo, he calls himself. He's got almost no followers. <laughs> He's got 114 followers. Uh, he studies mathematics at Cambridge. I don't know him personally at all. All I know is the articles that he writes for medium.com and they are remarkable explanations of mathematical theorems. And one of his most recent ones is titled Proving Arrow's Impossibility Theorem. And so if you want more details about Arrow's theorem, uh, go to medium.com, uh, type in Proving Arrow's Impossibility Theorem, uh, and Ethan, 
uh, I believe is the fellow's name, uh, has has done a, a very comprehensive job of um, explaining the details of the proof. I, I love this kind of thing. Um, I, I did, you know, mathematics myself at university, into, including some um, uh, graduate level stuff. Uh, but I was never, I never regarded myself as particularly good at it. Um, so, for example, I, I really, really wanted to know um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem. I really wanted to understand that, and I took subjects at the higher undergraduate level uh, in logic and computability. And we went through the proof in great detail. But the only way I could ever get through <laughs> the proof was to buy a, a book, a companion, to go along with the proof uh, as we did it, um, uh, which, which explained some more of the details. In fact, I have the book. Uh, there it is there. Um, uh, by Ernst Nagel and, and someone else. Uh, so it's a, it's a book about Gödel's proof. So an entire book written... Uh, that explains Gödel's proof, I should say. It's not merely about, um, you know, the history or anything like that. It's simply uh, an explanation of Gödel's proof, what the mechanics of getting through uh, the damn proof are, because it's a very long proof all on its own. Anyway, whatever the case, um, uh, this fellow on Medium writes these similar, similarly uh, 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 easy-to-follow expositions of these otherwise complicated mathematical proofs. Okay. Let's go back to the book. David writes, This is what Arrow did. He first laid down five elementary axioms that any rule defining the will of the people, the preferences of a group, should satisfy. And these axioms seem, at first sight, so reasonable as to be hardly worth stating. One of them is that the rule should define a group's preferences only in terms of the preferences of that group's members. Okay, <laughs> seems simple. Keep going. Another is that the rule must not simply designate the rules of one particular person to be the preferences of the group, regardless of what the others want. This is called the no-dictator axiom. A third is that if the members of the group are unanimous about something, in the sense that they have all identical preferences about it, then the rule must deem the group to have those preferences as well. Those three axioms are all expressions in this situation of the principle of representative government. Great. So they seem as David has said, hardly even worth stating. They're so blindingly obvious that if you have a group, it should be the preferences of the people in the group if it's, a, if it's sort of a, a democratic type exercise that we're going through here in decision-making. It's the preferences of the group that dictate what the group is going to do. Not another group over here that's dictating it. Okay, so, Or it's also not the case that one person from within the group can dictate what the entire group can do. That's the no dictator rule. So let's keep going. Arrow's fourth axiom is this. Suppose that under a given definition of the preferences of the group, the rule deems the group to have a particular preference, say for pizza over hamburger. Then it must still deem that to be the group's preference if some members who previously disagreed with the group i.e. they preferred hamburger, to change their minds and now prefer pizza. This constraint is similar to ruling out a population paradox. A group would be irrational if it changed its mind in the opposite direction to its members. Again, simple, straightforward stuff. David continues, The last axiom is that if the group has some preference and then some members change their minds about something else, then the rule must continue to assign the group that original preference. For instance, if some members have changed their minds about the relative merits of strawberries and raspberries, 
but none of their preferences about the relative merits of pizza and hamburger have changed, then the group's preference between pizza and hamburger must not be deemed to have changed either. This constraint can be again regarded as a matter of rationality. If no members of the group change any of their opinions about a particular comparison, nor can the group. All right, all simple axioms, very rational, um, straightforward ideas that it would seem no rational person would want to disagree with. So what's the point? As David writes, Arrow proved that the axioms that I have just listed are, despite their reasonable appearance, logically inconsistent with each other. No way of conceiving the will of the people can satisfy all five of them. This strikes at the assumptions behind social choice theory at an arguably even deeper level than the theorems of Belinsky and Young. First, Arrow's axioms are not about the apparently parochial issue of apportionment, but about any situation in which we want to conceive of a group as having preferences. Second, all five of these axioms are intuitively not just desirable to make a system fair, but essential for it to be rational. Yet, they are inconsistent. Pause there, just my commentary. How can you be rational yet inconsistent? Well, this is a, a, a matter of logic as well, and it, and it, it is reminiscent of Gödel's incompleteness theorem, by the way. What is Gödel's incompleteness theorem? Well, firstly, let's consider a completeness theorem. In this different kinds of logic, um, uh, let's not go too much into the details. The simplest kind of logic is sentential logic. Um, it's, it, it's very simple logic, okay? Baby sort of logic. And you can prove that everything that is provable within that system of logic, of logic is true. And that every theorem that you write down, every true statement that you can write down, true by according to the axioms, right, of the, of the logic, that everything that you can write down that is true also has a proof. Now, this idea that everything, that, that everything you can prove is true is called soundness, soundness, and everything that is true has a proof is called completeness. And this is true for sentential logic for the simplest of all logic. And I think that Kurt Gödel, I'd have to look this up, don't quote me on this, I think that um, um, uh, maybe his PhD thesis or something, that he proved the completeness of predicate logic, which is slightly more complicated than sentential logic. So uh, predicate logic is just a little bit more complicated. It includes um, uh, operators like there exists a number x or for all x and so on okay so won't get into the details the incompleteness theorem the incompleteness theorem was a profound discovery it was about simple arithmetic now simple arithmetic you know one plus two equals three and so on simple arithmetic we know what that is um is a more complicated system than basic logic, the most basic forms of logic. The most basic forms of logic don't refer to numbers at all, okay? But simple arithmetic obviously does. It's more complicated. It's richer. What Kurt Gödel proved was that although everything that you can prove within the system of simple arithmetic, and the, the system of simple arithmetic that he used was something that relied upon Pino's axioms. This guy Pino came up with the axioms of simple arithmetic. Anyway, everything that you can prove within that system was true according to that system. But here's the kicker. He also proved, but, but it, he, he showed, and this is the real profound discovery, that you can write down true statements, or at least statements, valid statements in the system of simple arithmetic that have no proof. We cannot show that they are either true or false. They're undecidable. 
This is profoundly strange and unusual. It means that there are things in mathematics that are valid to write down, but for which we have no proof. We cannot show that they're true or false, the mathematical understanding of those terms. Okay, and so that's what this, this here is reminiscent of. Okay, so um, we can have a, a, a sequence of perfectly, perfectly reasonable axioms, just like the perfectly, seemingly perfectly reasonable axioms of simple arithmetic, Peano's axioms, which nonetheless can lead to um, statements that cannot be proved true or false. We can't find a true or false um, proof of them. Okay, they're undecidable even though the, the axioms are so simple. And so to here, um, the, the, the axioms are not only desirable, but essential for it to be rational, yet they are inconsistent. And David continues, it seems to follow that a group of people jointly making decisions is necessarily irrational in one way or another. It may be a dictatorship or under some sort of arbitrary rule, or if it meets all three representative conditions, then it must sometimes change its mind in a direction opposite to that in which criticism and persuasion have been effective. So it will make perverse choices, no matter how wise and benevolent the people who interpret and enforce its preferences may be, unless possibly one of them is a dictator. So there is no such thing as the will of the people. There is no way to regard society as a decision maker with self-consistent preferences. This is hardly the conclusion that social choice theory was supposed to report back to the world. As with the apportionment problem, there were attempts to fix the implications of Arrow's theorem with why don't they just ideas. For instance, why not take into account how intense people's preferences are? For if slightly over half the electorate barely prefers X to Y, but the rest consider it a matter of life and death, that Y should be done, then most intuitive conceptions of representative government would designate Y as the will of the people. But intensities of preferences, and especially the differences in intensities among different people, or between the same person at different times, are notoriously difficult to define, let alone measure, like happiness. We talked about that in the last chapter, of course. Um, so this idea that I feel really intensely about this particular thing, and you don't feel so intense, so therefore my intensity of feeling should carry more weight than what yours does. Well, how do you measure that? It's just self-reported again. That begs the question of the last chapter. Okay, continuing. And in any case, including such things makes no difference. There are still no go theorems. Okay, I'm skipping just a little here. Uh, and we get into a very interesting thing on which David has produced a video, in fact. Um, so if you go to David Deutsch's... Oh, in fact, I'll link, I'll link uh, to David Deutsch's video about this thing here, electoral systems. The electoral system in Great Britain was proposed for, that, that people were suggesting and agitating, and still do agitate, as they do in Australia and various other places, for changing the voting system. It's an important problem, okay, given what else is being said in this chapter about how to rationally make decisions. There can be better and worse ways of making decisions, better and worse ways of having voting systems. Okay, and David writes on this topic. One perennially controversial social choice problem is that of devising an electoral system. Such a system is mathematically similar to an apportionment scheme, but instead of allocating seats to states on the basis of population, it allocates them to candidates or parties on the basis of votes. However, it is more paradoxical than apportionment and has more serious consequences because in the case of elections, the element of persuasion is central to the whole exercise. An election is supposed to determine what the voters have become persuaded of. 
In contrast, apportionment is not about states trying to persuade people to migrate from other states. Consequently, an electoral system can contribute to, or can inhibit, traditions of criticism in the society concerned. Okay, so just my commentary. So that's extremely important. If we want progress to continue as fast as possible, we need to ensure that the traditions of criticism are not thwarted. But as David is saying here, there can be voting systems which may inhibit traditions of criticism and so can actively stifle progress, enabling society to solve problems as quickly as possible. Let's continue. He writes, For example, an electoral system in which seats are allocated wholly or partly in proportion to the number of votes received by each party is called a proportional representation system. We know from Belinsky and Young that if an electoral system is too proportional, it will be subject to the analogue of the population paradox and other paradoxes. And indeed, the political scientist Peter Hurid Klickgaard, in a study of the most recent eight general elections in Denmark, under its proportional representation system, showed that every one of them manifested paradoxes. These included the more preferred, less seats paradox, in which a majority of voters prefer party X to party Y, but party Y receives more seats than party X. But that is really the least of the irrational attributes of proportional representation. A more important one, which is shared by even the mildest of proportional systems, is that they assign disproportionate power in the legislature to the third largest party, and often to even smaller parties. It works like this. It is rare in any system for a single party to receive an overall majority of votes. Hence, if votes are reflected proportionally in the legislature, no legislation can be passed unless some of the parties cooperate to pass it, and no government can be formed unless some of them form a coalition. Sometimes the two largest parties manage to do this, but the most common outcome is that the leader of the third largest party holds the balance of power and decides which of the two largest parties shall join it in government and which shall be sidelined and for how long. That means that it is correspondingly harder for the electorate to decide which party and which policies will be removed from power. Pause there, my reflection. This is a very common problem in Australia. We do have um, large minority parties, um, by which I mean third parties. Basically, in Australia, we have two main parties, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. Or in federal, it is the Liberal Coalition Party, which is a neat way of getting around the fact that the Liberal Party has formed a coalition with the National Party. And so it's the Liberal National uh, Coalition. And so already we have a, a bit of an issue there, which results in compromise and everything else that we were talking about earlier. But the Greens have, over the years, been a sizable third party. And in some places, in certain states, the Greens have become large enough to sometimes ally themselves with Labor, with the Labor Party, just the left side. Um, and so then the two of them together can form a coalition which is larger than the Liberal Party, which often is the largest party. Or even worse than that, the, the Green Party will not form a coalition with anyone. It will just sit in the middle and it will hold this balance of power. It, it's been a number of times over the years where in the Senate in Australia, the, the Green Party has held that balance of power, which means it, although it might only have two, three senators out of the 76 that are actually in the Parliament of Australia, it might only have two or three, that is enough to either give Labor a majority or the Liberal Party a majority. 
which means then that in fact the most powerful party in a sense is the green party because they become the kingmakers now david david goes through a historic example here about uh west germany where in fact the green the greens seem to like being the third party uh changing uh, changing sides in germany um so i'll just skip that little bit and I'll go back to the book where David writes, Arrow's theorem applies not only to collective decision-making, but also to individuals as follows. Consider a single rational person faced with a choice between several options. If the decision requires thought, then each option must be associated with an explanation, at least a tentative one, for why it might be best. To choose an option is to choose the explanation. So how does one decide which explanation to adopt? Common sense says that one weighs them or weighs the evidence that their arguments present. This is an ancient metaphor. Statues of justice have carried scale since antiquity. More recently, inductivism has cast scientific thinking in the same mold, saying that scientific theories are chosen, justified and believed, and somehow even formed in the first place according to the weight of evidence in their favour. Uh, just my commentary there. That's Bayesianism as well. Bayesianism tries to mathematise this idea of inductivism as being about weighing the evidence in order to decide which theory is correct, or even, as the Bayesians will say, to produce the theory in the first place. But the critical rationalist understanding is that theories are creatively conjectured, and the function of evidence is to simply decide between them. It's a black and white process. It's not a matter of weighing. The, the evidence will actually rule out all the theories except for one. And the evidence then is explained by that single remaining theory. For example, again going back to Eddington's experiment in 1919, which decided between Newton's theory of gravity and Einstein's theory of gravity. <clears throat> and it ruled, out it ruled out Newton's theory of gravity and in fact all other theories of gravity. And the observations that were made, the evidence that was seen, was explained by general relativity. That's the way of understanding the philosophy of science. That is Popper's way of explaining this. That is David Deutsch's way of explaining this. This is the correct way of explaining this. What Bayes would say is that somehow or other you weigh the evidence. And one way of just refuting Bayes, my, my own personal way of refuting Bayes, is that in 1919, almost every physicist will agree that the experiment was a crucial experiment which ruled out Newton in favour of Einstein. But if you are really a committed Bayesian, shouldn't you regard that all the experiments prior to 1919, that all almost all the many hundreds or thousands of experiments that had been done, observations that had been made, that were consistent with Newton's theory of gravity, shouldn't they count on the scales? And so you've got all of this weight of evidence from Newton weighing down one side and apparently you only have one experiment here with regard to Einstein and so shouldn't Newton still be regarded as true on Bayes' theorem? Well of course the Bayesians then have, I guess they would do this little dance where they would say, oh no but Einstein's theory now subsumes all of that previous evidence that was counted for Newton. Well that's kind of a critical rationalist view. It's saying that indeed this experiment is the one that says that now all of that other evidence is in fact explained best by the general theory of relativity and not by Newton's theory of gravity. So the Bayesian, I presume, would collapse into being a critical rationalist at that point. Although I'm being unfair to the Bayesians because I don't have one here and <laughs> I'm not planning on interviewing one either. Okay, back to the book. When we're talking about 
weight of evidence. David writes, consider that supposed weighing process. Each piece of evidence, including each feeling, prejudice, value, axiom, argument, and so on, depending upon what weight it had in that person's mind, would contribute that amount to that person's preferences between various explanations. Hence, for the purposes of Arrow's theorem, each piece of evidence can be regarded as an individual participating in the decision-making process where the person as a whole would be the group. Now, the process that adjudicates between the different explanations would have to satisfy certain constraints if it were to be rational. For instance, if having decided that one option was the best, that the person received further evidence that gave additional weight to that option, then the person's overall preference would still have to be for that option, and so on. Arrow's theorem says that those requirements are inconsistent with each other and so seems to imply that all decision-making or thinking must be irrational. Unless perhaps one of the internal agents is a dictator empowered to override the combined opinions of all the other agents. But this is an infinite regress. How does the dictator itself choose between rival explanations about which other agents it would be best to override? And here we get to the real gold nugget at the centre of this chapter. And David writes, There is something very wrong with that entire conventional model of decision making, both within single minds and for groups as assumed in social choice theory. It conceives of decision-making as a process of selecting from existing options according to a fixed formula, such as an apportionment rule or electoral system. But in fact, that is only what happens at the end of decision-making, the phase that does not require creative thought. In terms of Edison's metaphor, the model refers only to the perspiration phase without realising that decision-making is problem-solving and that without the inspiration phase, nothing is ever solved and there is nothing to choose between. At the heart of decision-making is the creation of new options and the abandonment or modification of existing ones. To choose an option rationally is to choose the associated explanation. Therefore, rational decision-making consists not of weighing evidence, but of explaining it in the course of explaining the world. One judges arguments as explanations, not justifications, and one does this creatively using conjecture, tempered by every kind of criticism. It is in the nature of good explanations, being hard to vary, that there is only one of them. Having created it, one is no longer tempted by the alternatives. They have not been outweighed, but out-argued, refuted, and abandoned. During the course of a creative process, one is not struggling to distinguish between countless different explanations of nearly equal merit. Typically, one is struggling to even create one good explanation. And having succeeded, one is glad to be rid of the rest. Wow. Okay, so that really does go um, quite the distance to explaining what's wrong with conventional ideas about decision-making and what David Deutsch is presenting here as putting creativity at the centre of how we go about choosing things. Moving on to the next part, and this is where David um, talks about compromise, which is the way I began, if you recall. <clears throat> so let's get into David's explanation of this. Another misconception to which the idea of decision-making by weighing sometimes leads, is that problems can be solved by weighing. In particular, that disputes between advocates of rival explanations can be resolved by creating a weighted average of their proposals. But the fact is that a good explanation being hard to vary at all without losing its explanatory power is hard to mix with a rival explanation. Something halfway between them is usually worse than either of them separately. Mixing two explanations to create a better explanation requires an additional act of creativity. That is why good explanations are discrete 
separated from each other by bad explanations and why when choosing between explanations we are faced with discrete options pause there my reflection so um this is precisely again i keep on going back to the same trite example but it serves the purpose here if we have two theories einstein's theory of general relativity and 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 newton's theory of gravity um and newton's theory of gravity is basically summed up by the formula f equals gm 1m2 over r squared and einstein's theory of relativity is far more complicated mathematically but is about the curvature of space-time um, if we weren't able to decide between these two for some reason or other uh, if we're at a point where just prior to 1919 we didn't have the crucial experiment just yet but it seemed like einstein's theory was making some good predictions consistent with what newton's theory was um, the conventional model of coming up with a compromise given that we couldn't decide between them perhaps if you're a smart physicist that understands both but you can't actually you're not in a position yet to decide the idea that you can come up with a compromise something that's halfway between the two is ridiculous one that's halfway between whatever that would mean to have the one that's halfway between the two i don't know but if we could we would expect that as a bad explanation because here we have two good explanations two good explanations competing um for explaining gravity. Something that's halfway between won't be a good explanation, whatever halfway between those two means. Back to the book. David writes, In complex decisions, the creative phase is often followed by a mechanical perspiration phase in which one ties down details of the explanation that are not yet hard to vary but can be made so by non-creative means. For an example, an architect whose client asks how tall a skyscraper can be built, given certain constraints, does not just calculate that number from a formula. The decision-making process may end with such a calculation, but it begins creatively with ideas for how the client's priorities and constraints might best be met by new design. And before that, the clients had to decide creatively what those priorities and constraints should be. At the beginning of that process, they would not have been aware of all the preferences that they would end up presenting to the architects. Okay, so um, just skipping a little more here, um, and David compares that process to voting, namely that, that the person is choosing between, when, when voting, a rational person is choosing between their explanations of politicians and their policies. Um, they're not weighing things in their mind. They're ruling out, they're criticizing and abandoning once and for all particular political parties or particular candidates. That's how they choose between people. Uh, back to the book. So it is not true that decision-making necessarily suffers from those crude irrationalities, not because there is anything wrong with Arrow's theorem or any of the other no-go theorems, but because social choice theory is itself based on false assumptions about what thinking and deciding consist of. It is Zeno's mistake. It is mistaking an abstract process that it has named decision-making for the real-life process of the same name. So this is so important in, just pause there, my commentary. This is so important in science and philosophy that when someone has named something and they say social choice theory, and this is mathematics, and this is the mathematics that governs how people make choices, just because they've named it that doesn't mean that it actually is about how society makes choices. They've just called it that. One might very well say the same for other subjects perhaps all of psychology just because it's named psychology what these people in academic psychology are engaged in <laughs> sometimes or evolutionary psychology might not actually be psychology it might not actually deserve the name this can happen more often than 
we might appreciate or that we might want to admit admit as well. Uh, people name morality all sorts of things as well, and it's not actually morality. Just because you call it that doesn't mean that that's what you're actually studying. That doesn't mean that that's what you're actually talking about. You just named it that thing. You have mistaked perhaps an abstract process that you're going through that you have named, in this case, decision-making for the real-life process of the same name. Okay, skipping a little bit more. And David then talks about uh, what, what, what people's reaction to these no-go theorems has been, that despite the fact that mathematics has been shown to reveal that it's almost impossible to come up with consistent and rational means by which we can make decisions, what's the been the response to that? David writes, virtually all commentators have responded to these paradoxes and no-go theorems in a mistaken and rather revealing way. They regret them. This illustrates the confusion to which I am referring. They wish that these theorems of pure mathematics were false. If only mathematics permitted it, they complain, we human beings could set up a just society that makes its decisions rationally. But faced with the impossibility of that, there is nothing left for us to do but to decide which injustices and irrationalities we like best and to enshrine them in law. As Webster wrote of the apportionment problem, that which cannot be done perfectly must be done in a matter as near perfection as can be. If exactness cannot, from the nature of things, be attained, then the nearest practicable approach to exactness ought to be made. But what sort of perfection is a logical contradiction? A logical contradiction is nonsense. The truth is simpler. If your conception of justice conflicts with the demands of logical rationality, then it is unjust. If your conception of rationality conflicts with a mathematical theorem, or in this case with many theorems, then your conception of rationality is irrational. To stick stubbornly to logically impossible values not only guarantees failure in the narrow sense that one can never meet them, it also forces one to reject optimism. Every evil is due to a lack of knowledge, and so deprives one of the means to make progress. Wishing for something that is logically impossible is a sign that there is something better to wish for. Moreover, if my conjecture in chapter 8 is true, an impossible wish is ultimately uninteresting as well. Okay, I've almost finished the chapter, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there actually um, for today because this one's gone on for long enough. It's only been a two-part um, episode all about choices. But I hope you've enjoyed this one. I, I found this one really fascinating. I remember when I first read the book, when I encountered this chapter, I thought it's a rather strange choice for David to make on choices to talk about, to spend so long talking about um, one particular parochial issue. But um, it's clear in retrospect why that was done, to reveal that these supposedly perfectly logical, rational systems are not the only thing we need in reality to guide our behavior as human beings and as societies. Mathematics is indispensable in many ways, but is not the cure-all. Nothing is the cure-all. Creativity will always be required. And again, this puts people at the center so much of actual reality that we are guiding in a way the way in which the entire cosmos is evolving. At the moment, only locally here you know, on planet Earth, unless we're guiding the way in which the Earth is kind of terraforming itself, constructing new things, and we're doing that by making choices. Thank you for listening. Um, I'll see you very soon again for the next chapter. Bye-bye. Once more, as always, thank you to everyone for the support on Patreon. Now, if you're interested in making a Patreon 
um, regular donation or a one-off donation, um, you can search for me on Google or there's a PayPal account as well that's um, useful for one-off donations. Thanks again and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.